listening to Affect Autism, where Affect is the number one tool we use in supporting child development through playful interactions. Get 15% off any DIR 101 course and introduction to DIR and DIR floor time through ICDL.com by using the promo code AFFECTA15. That's A-F-F-E-C-T-A-1-5. This week's guest is Amanda Binns, a clinician scientist who has her PhD and is also a speech and language pathologist. She's currently the co-lead at Holland Bloorview Kids Rehabilitation Hospital in Toronto of a student-led environment designed to support autistic children and families across the province of Ontario. She's also an assistant professor at the University of Toronto and an adjunct researcher at Western University in London, Ontario. She's with us today to introduce us to a new resource designed to support speech and language pathologists, or SLPs, who are working with autistic clients and their families. Welcome back, Amanda. Hi, Daria. It's nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm very excited about this new resource. I've seen the website and it looks incredible. Why don't you tell us what it is and what was the impetus for this project? How did it come about? I'm excited to talk to you guys today about this project that we've been working hard on for the past year and a half or so. It stemmed from the need for supporting speech language pathologists across the province of Ontario as in the new Ontario Autism Program or the OEP as it's called here. Um, speech language pathologists are now included as one of the funded services within this program. And so we went to the literature to find out what type of guidance is out there for SLPs to be able to access in regards to supporting autistic clients and families. And uh, a student who's working with me, uh, Lauren Choi, she did a systematic review of the documents that were available. There were actually only three documents that we found that were available offered by kind of those major organizations like the RCSLT out in the UK, which is their kind of governing body for speech language pathologists. Similarly, there was one in Australia, and then in the United States, ASHA had a guidance document. And so we were looking through the different guidance documents and found some gaps in there. And one of the biggest gaps that we found within that systematic review was that these guidance documents weren't created in collaboration with communities. Um, so there might have been maybe family members who were able to kind of like peek at a finished product and provide their input, or maybe even autistic individuals who were able to, again, peek at a finished product and provide their input. Um, but what we thought was really important was to be able to like co-create something together. And so this guidance document focuses on really kind of aligning the values of speech language pathologists with the values out in the community and really kind of building those bridges and partnerships with different organizations and different people across the province to create something that that we felt would be like implementable, right? So SLPs would be able to like take it and actually use it as opposed to it being like something that like sits out on the shelf um, and that it would align with what we're hearing from the community that they want. So who had input into this? Which, which um, how did you choose the community? 
Yeah. So we, we formed a partnership panel with speech language and pathologists from across the province. Um, and we even had some input um, from speech language pathologists in, in different uh, provinces across Canada, um, because there, there is a gap in kind of the Canadian uh, access to these types of resources. So we wanted what we were creating to, yes, be Ontario focused, but also to be applicable across Canada. Um, so we have those speech language pathologists who represent a range of different voices and work with different clientele across the province. Um, we also had family members who are integral to the process of creating this, right? Hearing from them about what they want from children who are maybe like more of a preschool age or children who are in their teenage years or school age years. We wanted to have a range of perspectives. Um, and we also had autistic community members who, again, shared different perspectives um, integrated into what we called a partnership panel. And so this group helped to inform some of the research that was done to help create this document. They had input on the guiding principles that we initially drafted. Um, and they had, like I mentioned, they had input on the research. So what we did was, yes, we had a few voices of like family members and a few voices of autistic individuals and clinicians, but we didn't have those broad perspectives. And we know that I mean, as humans, we're all very heterogeneous and um, within the autism community that that heterogeneity also exists. And so we wanted to have that range of perspectives integrated. So we launched a survey uh, across the province of Ontario um, and across Canada, actually, to get a range of perspectives and um heard from families, heard from autistic individuals. We actually had really good recruitment. I think we had about 85 autistic individuals and hundred families respond to the survey. Um, and then also we've been conducting interviews to gather more fulsome um, information about experiences accessing SLP services, what was most valued, how can SLPs most help in supporting kind of the overall well-being of our clients. So all of this information was kind of integrated. It was a lot of moving parts, um, but in the first draft of this document, which is published on our website right now, um, we, we share the, the guiding principles that again, like the community co-designed together. Um, and again, this is, as we said, a first draft of the document. We are really hoping to be able to keep iterating and keep growing the bank of resources that we have for community clinicians. Um, and, and so there's opportunity to even provide input on what we've currently developed, share with us what clinicians wanna see more of or what they wanna see uh, developed in the future to help them potentially implement some of these recommendations that were, were generated together. Okay, and before we look at the website, how was this project funded? Was it um, a project of Holland Blue Review or was it a, a government grant? It was a government grant. Um, so the Ontario Autism Program funded uh, 
some capacity building grants. And so we were able to create this resource through the, the government funded grant. It was the services or the Ministry of Children and Community and Social Services Ontario Autism Program Workforce Capacity Fund that that allowed for us to be able to, to create this resource. Um, and it was a collaboration across, I mean, Western University. We led the project through Western. So Dr. Janice Oram-Cardi and myself were the principal investigators for this project. And we had a broader team of, as I said, clinicians, family partners, autistic individuals who all came together to make this work. Um, we also had community partners. So um, clinicians in the field helped. So like the lead of our steering committee was uh, Cindy Harrison, who is a speech language pathologist um, and parent of an autistic teen in Ontario. And she was integral to this this project as well. So her center act um, served as a community partner. Um, speech Audiology Canada came together with us to be able to create this this resource. So Speech Audiology Canada is like our version of the, the ASHA, um, the, the American uh, Speech Language and Hearing Association, um, Hall and Bloorview, University of Toronto. And then we were fortunate to have um, CASH, so the Center for Advancing Collaborative Healthcare and Education. Um, through UHN contribute to the project as well. So Dr. Stella Ng and Farah Friesen really brought this lens of health professions education to the creation of this document. And so again, you'll notice if you, when you start to look at the document, it's not just a document. So we were trying to infuse some of those best practices that we know within health professions education for getting um, clinicians to really start to think about like, how am I implementing this? What can I do to um, implement these recommendations? What can I do to continue to reflect on my practices to be able to check in to see how I'm implementing this? Um, again, because we know that sometimes what happens with guidance documents is that they're written and they're shared, but then the actionability of them um, is is tricky. And so like we really worked closely with them to be able to create something that we hope will be very actionable for clinicians in the field who are using it. Excellent. So for those watching on YouTube, you'll see that I've shared my screen with the website. If you're listening on audio, the website is www.slpmaps.ca, slpmaps.ca, and MAP stands for Meeting the Needs of Autistic People. So would you like to walk us through the website, Amanda, and keep in mind that some people are listening audio only? Yes, yes. Um, yeah, so as you'll see, like, we've really focused when creating this document on again, harnessing the collective wisdom of community speech language pathologists, researchers, autistic individuals, and parents to um, create something that we hope will promote more equitable services for families across the province. Um, again, will align the values that SLPs are integrating um, into their work with what is of value to the autistic community and uh, their families. Um, and we've 
we've looked at supporting some more of the, the more marginalized communities or communities that where the attention hasn't necessarily been focused. So within this guidance resource, we actually have a section on thinking about gender differences. We know that, I mean, the research has primarily focused on um, autistic boys, right? Like when we look at the participants in the research um, and there's, there's unique um, aspects of like doing assessments, even identifying autism earlier in gender diverse individuals that we wanted to make sure that we attended to um, within this guidance document. Um, and we wanted to make sure that we integrated kind of all forms of knowledge. So we integrate kind of the evidence base from more of the research field. We integrate the evidence from clinician expertise and practice without in out in the real world community and the expertise of those with lived experience. Um, so it really is a triangulation of all of this information to come together to share kind of the best available evidence and guidance for SLPs at this time. Um, on the website, you'll find access to the team. So this kind of outlines some of the team members who participated in this project. So you can get a, a little bit of an idea of like kind of all the different people who really contributed to and supported the, the rollout. Um, there are some people who, who were integral to this project who elected not to be um, on the website, but um, this is kind of the represent, representation of some of our team. Um, if you click on the resource section, you get kind of a high level overview of the guidance documents that are available. So you'll see at the bottom, there's these three buttons. So there's guidance resources, there's pocket guides, and then there's information about the development and process, which will be where the research that we did to inform the development of this document will be housed. Um, so the guidance resources includes 11 different guiding principles, again, that were co-created by the team and um, individuals participating in, in this work. The pocket guides are more of those implementation tools. And those are things that we're continuing to build out and we'll be continuing to add over the next little while. Um, but each there's there's access to be able to download the full guidance document that houses all 11 guiding principles within one document. There's also the ability to download just the individual guiding principles if you're interested in just having like a bite-sized read. I know sometimes <laughs> downloading a document with so many different pages to, to read can be overwhelming. So we wanted to attend to people's different styles for wanting to kind of take in some of the information. Um, so all 11 guiding principles are uh, available and they cover um, things like what are neurodiversity affirming SLP um, assessment and support planning um, approaches? How can we attend to the language that we are using within our report writing, within our conversations with clients and families, and even just out in the community, right? Because we know that like the language that we use can shape the perception of how um, 
others view autism. So I have a good example of that. Um, although it wasn't an SLP, it was a developmental pediatrician and we had a developmental assessment probably five, mm -hmm. six years ago. And the report came back and said, I found the client very difficult to assess. And mm -hmm. I felt sick inside reading that. So I think that's an example of what you have in this uh, second mm -hmm. guiding principle, inclusive and strengths focused language. What is a better way to word that <laughs> instead of putting, sure. imposing that on the child that they were difficult, maybe I wasn't skilled enough to know how to connect with that child might've been more appropriate, but what is a more inclusive and strengths focused way? So I love that. Sorry. I just wanted to input yeah. that before you go on to the third guiding principle. <laughs> no, that's, that's important. And yeah, it's exactly that. It's like framing it. It's, it's not all about the child, right? Like the child is interacting within probably an environment that wasn't designed for neurodivergent individuals, right? Like it was designed for neurotypical um, individuals who might not have sensory differences, right? And so looking at it as like, how can I adjust the environment or how is the environment, how is my interaction style maybe impacting how the child is responding? Because it's it's the dyadic nature and right, the child within the context that they are in that we want to attend to. So like even within um I mean, maybe we can like pull up the, let me see if I can share. Can I share my screen for a moment? Sure. Okay. If I share this document here. Okay. So you can see like, here's, we, we have like inclusive and strengths focused language. So at the top of the guiding principle, we have informative, empowering, and supportive terms and discourse should be used by speech language pathologists and communication disorders assistants when communicating both spoken and written information to or about a client. In the initial section, so this the background and rationale covers some of the reasons why. Like, why is this important? So we've gone to the literature to draw from um, what, what is reported within the literature. We also have cultural considerations, right? Because the, the language that you use would differ depending on cultures that you are supporting. And then we have this, this section on like putting the principle into practice, right? So like, where do we start with this? So first and foremost, like to asking our client and their family what the preferred terms are. Um, but even checking in with them about like parents might not, they might not know, right? They might not have ideas about what language that they want to use. And this could be like an opportunity for like sharing information about different perspectives. And so as an SOP, you have some of this information here about the different perspectives within the background. Um, and just to and give then, it, just to give an example of um, the people on YouTube can see, but um, she's showing the, it says, first and foremost, ask the client and their family what their preferred terms are. Example, autistic person or person with autism, because that it it tends to be have moved towards uh, away from person first language and towards, you know, I'm an autistic person. It's part of who I am. But some people do prefer 
separating that and using that person first language. So that that's an example of the point that Amanda was just making. Yeah, yeah. And with with this guiding principle, there's also a pocket guide, right, that we that we had talked about to help clinicians to be able to implement this. So there's what we call an affirming language resource. So the affirming language resource kind of outlines some of the, the different terms that as a clinician, you might not even recognize that um, because they're so ingrained in the training that we've received um, and have been around for decades, we might not even recognize the fact that they could be ableist or they could be perpetuating different stereotypes um, that we want to avoid. And so there's suggestions for alternate terms that might be able to be used that, again, you want to talk to your clients to see which terms that they feel most comfortable with. You also need to, to navigate kind of what is it that we're hoping to achieve with the reports, right? If it's a report that you're writing and you you want to be able to be able to um, reach services, um, the the language that you use might be different than if you're communicating in a letter to a teacher about what's working in therapy sessions and um, providing suggestions for how to best support the client's communication or language needs. And then, um, yep, and then on to the rest of the guiding principles. Did you want to highlight some yeah. of them or all of them? Yeah, so this is, <laughs> um, this one here, like the consideration of gender differences in autism. Again, I think it's something that's maybe not traditionally covered within academic training um, for thinking about like, how does autism maybe present differently in gender diverse individuals. Um, a lot of the research has been focused on male population and identifying different signs. But what we've done is we've kind of done a literature search of all the different um, studies out there on how do you identify um, autism in girls, right? And what are some of the different things that you might think about in girls? And then we start to think about and reflect on, again, like how might this apply to gender diverse individuals? Um, and again, there's reflective questions in there to kind of have the clinicians check in with themselves because this type of work is never like a one and done, right? Like, okay, check. I've, I've changed the way that I refer to clients and I'm using the identity first language now. I'm, I'm done. That's not the case, right? Like it's, it's a continuous process. Things change, um, and iterate, and we need to constantly like check in with ourselves to see, um, how we're practicing, how it aligns with, with the values of the community. So we have questions in there to, to help guide clinicians in doing that. Um, the other one, like when we talked about like, what is evidence-informed practice? To be honest, the field of speech-language pathology, like there hasn't been um, a tremendous amount of research specifically on SLP practices in supporting autistic clients and their families. And so how do SLPs like navigate um, using evidence-informed practice? It's really through that integration of the research the lived experience of clinicians um, and practicing and clinical expertise and the lived experience of our clients and our families. Um, and, and how do we, how do we think about that? I think there was like this really powerful quote that um, 
one of our survey respondents shared with us. And they said like evidence-based practice can be really tricky, particularly when those who define evidence are not those receiving the service. So parents tend to view maybe compliance as evidence while autistic people might have different parameters to define what evidence is. Um, so which voices do we prioritize when determining parameters for evidence, right? So again, like one of those questions that there is no one answer, right? And we can't even answer that, but just having that question and holding it and pondering like when we're reading a research article or when we see something posted on Instagram that says, this is the way to support your clients. Thinking about like whose voices is this message centering? Um, how does this apply to the broader community, right? There's all these different questions that we can we can check in with that I think help us to be able to provide more nuanced and tailored individualized supports for our clients and our families. Love that. Love that. Um, we we didn't really highlight accessible care yet. <clears throat> oh, yes. But you made me think yeah. of that in your description because exactly your point, if compliance is the way that you're measuring evidence-based, who is that suiting? Is that suiting parents, teachers, community, but the client really is the autistic individual. Is it suiting them? And a lot of times that can lead to trauma, which is uh, guideline number six, your trauma-informed uh, pocketbook. But did you want to talk about accessible care and then merge into the trauma-informed information? Yeah, I mean, I think for the accessible care, we really drew from some of the research that was primarily coming out of McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario, where um, they were looking at like what what would help families to be able to access the services better, right? Um, and what would make them more accessible across the province, right? Because we have more of the urban regions, we have very rural, rural regions and um, really thinking about again, like how can we be flexible in like the ways that we're offering services? Um, so this one like applies almost like more broadly, but is important for us to think about particularly now as the Ontario Autism Program uh, is rolled out, like how are we making sure that services are available to everyone, right? Like not just the people who are maybe waiting in the, the urban centers to be able to access care. So it just helps us to think about some different ways that we might approach that. Um, the trauma-informed care, I think is really important to, to think about in this context as well. And again, like we've pulled from the different, different viewpoints, right? So like, what are some of the um, core elements of trauma-informed care that again, clinicians can keep in mind. We're not asking SLPs to become mental health practitioners, but it really is about like, seeing the child and the family as a whole and recognizing that some individuals have experienced trauma in the even in the services that they might have accessed in the past i mean we're still seeing some traumatic um things in the news around individuals potentially being like using the shock therapy and um, again, like being able to hold, I know that 
many of the clinicians who are, who are listening to this, I'm sure, have have never engaged in in that type of um, intervention, experience. quote unquote. Oh, experience. Yes. Yeah. Like, I mean, I don't. You don't want to go. I want to call it abuse, right? Um, right. But it's um, it still exists. Right. And that's that's very traumatic for families. And so being able to to kind of hold that acknowledge and support our families who might um, be impacted by that. How how might we do that in our work? Um, I think this meaningful and enjoyable supports is something that, again, like is is really important. I, I have a colleague who's working out in the UK now who had done some interviews with autistic individuals and was talking to them about um, participation in um, more physical activity programs. And some of these youth had mentioned that they weren't able to participate in these community physical activity programs because they were spending so much time in therapy. And again, that just, I think, invites us to think about like, how are, are we making sure that the therapy, yes, we want it to be meaningful and support the child to be able to like grow, but we also want it to be fun, right? When we hear autistic individuals talking, like they want to, their overall well-being to be able to be supported. And how are we accounting for that within uh, the services that we're providing to our clients? Um, and this model, we also thought about um, out of McMaster University. Again, they they had the like, is it the four Fs or the five Fs framework where they talk about like making therapy like fun and functional, um, involving family. I think uh, I'm drawing a blank from all the the Fs, but but it's in here. It's in it's in the document. Um, but making sure that we're attending to that that fun one um, to make sure that that what we're doing with our clients um, helps them. Uh, really to grow and that that they enjoy it. Um, again, partnering with clients and families, it's not new to speech language pathologists, but thinking about like different ways of, of how we can do it, how we can include the client in those decision-making processes, um, thinking about how do we navigate tricky situations. We did a survey with SLPs across Ontario who were talking about um, that sometimes it can be tricky when um, families hold different perspectives on what, what autism is to them and how do I navigate these conversations? Again, we, we have some suggestions and there's not like a, a rule book or, or like one right answer. Mm -hmm. Again, it's thinking about like, how do I select from these different ideas and tailor it to my client's individual needs? Um, yeah, another piece was around collaborating, right? How do we collaborate? Again, we've heard from SLPs time and time again that they want to be collaborating. Um, I mean, particularly with occupational therapists, that was one profession that was noted time and time again by clinicians being like, I really want to be able to collaborate with, with OTs. Um, so actually I'm working with Moira Penna at Holland Bloorview right now to create some tools to promote that communication between the OTs and the SLPs. Um, and we're working to create a guidance document that again, will like map on to this SLP guidance document. So we're kind of, we're practicing what we preach in terms of 
like building the guidance document, making sure that the guidance documents across professions align with one another, which again, will hopefully promote um, more of that interprofessional collaboration. So I'm, um, I'm again, glad you brought that up because I actually was going to ask if this um, resource is strictly for SLPs. And when you mentioned here the collaboration with other professionals, uh, maybe I'll just jump in before you finish the last two guiding principles. Do you yeah. find that there will be other professionals or parents or others that will look at this and use it and find it helpful as well? Or do you really, I know you aim it towards SLPs, but um, I'm interested to know about the audience. I have, I have shared this with some educators, um, like teachers and educational assistants who work in the field. And they've said to me, they're like, Amanda, this is really applicable to our work too. Um, I mean, our funding was to be able to uh, support speech language pathologists. And so we wanted to create something specific for speech language pathologists in the field. Um, but yes, I do think that like many of these different guiding principles would be very applicable to other professions um as well i mean the individualized the last one there that says like individualized assessment and support planning again like that that's probably more specific to speech language pathologists although i really love reading um resources from other professions too because i find that that like sometimes i can be like oh like i could integrate that into my practice and still stay within my scope as an slp but it just it adds another perspective to to the work that that you're doing and maybe even helps you to have shared language with the other professionals that you're trying to collaborate with so that you're you're speaking the same language um so yes i would encourage if you're if you're not an slp again this is a free resource so you do have to sign up to be able to download it and again this is because this is part of a research study and we had um, funding to be able to create this project and we're hoping to get more funding to be able to um, continue to implement this into the field um we we are kind of collecting data on like who this this resource is reaching um and then also collecting input on like what is the value of this resource what what are you using in your practice we have a little survey at the end of each of the resources to like ask um readers about like their input whether or not it was helpful um how helpful it was and what else you want to hear from us um in this and Sorry, I skipped over culturally sensitive care. Um, that's our guiding principle 10 here. Um, and again, like I think the perspectives on autism differ depending on, on people's different cultures. And so thinking about um, that in our practice. Um, and we also came across like literature that was talking about like autism as a culture in and of itself. So like autistic individuals having this culture and even 
um, I was talking to an autistic colleague of mine who was talking about like the different like language and like kind of slang terms that were being used within the autistic community. And only the autistic people knew what some of these words mean and really kind of creating this culture um, with one another. Again, just something interesting for clinicians to be able to, to know, to be able to hold when they're practicing with their clients. Um, to be able to support clients across the age range. <clears throat> Excellent. And again, for those on YouTube, I am showing at the top of the website, there is a login button and a member content button. And you are able, it brings up a pop-up window to sign up with your name and email and create a password. It's all free. And as Amanda said, there'll be a few survey items just so they can see who it's reaching. And we just wanted to make sure that we were, were highlighting for people that even though you have to like sign in, we're not going to be bombarding you with emails. Um, it's just we might send a quick little note if we have a new resource, because we do have a number of po pocket maps that are in the works that will soon um, be shared with you. Um, I said we had that pocket map that we were developing with OTs to promote communication between OTs and SLPs. We have another one that um, stems from an umbrella review um, that Lauren Denisic, uh, a PhD student at Western, um, conducted that looked at it's an umbrella review is essentially a review of reviews. And um, so she looked at all of the different reviews for uh, services that might be offered within the field of speech language pathologists for autistic individuals from preschool up to age 18. Um, and so we have like a quick um, highlight of some of the different programs that we know are used within the Canadian context um, specifically, um, where we have kind of mapped out the research evidence. And again, that is just one piece, again, of that evidence-based, we could say the stool, right? The evidence, that the stool, where there's a three-legged stool, and we need to make sure that we've got like the research, we've got the uh, clinical expertise, and we've got the um, community and lived experience perspective. So it's just highlighting one of the legs of the stool, but again, it's helpful for clinicians to be able to, to, to reference that as they're selecting different programs. We also now, have an exciting study underway, um, that is looking at, um, the different kind of mechanisms and ingredients within coaching, parent coaching interventions. Um, and we'll be kind of comparing and contrasting those different parent mediated coaching interventions in like what types of things are parents coached to do? How are parents coached to do, um, to apply these different strategies so that we talk about like selecting programs that are tailored to the client, but also tailored to the parent, right? The parents' ways of learning, how might they best um, learn some of the different approaches to be able to support their client. So we have that underway and we'll hopefully be sharing some resources um, from that research as well. Excellent. So I guess uh, one question I can think of before we wrap mm -hmm. up is the types of approaches that exist. So I 
I'm wondering if there's a focus or a guidance on the use of specific styles of approaches like applied behavior analysis or DIR floor time or, you know, all the different various types of approaches that are out there, you know, relationship development intervention, there's Sunrise program. There's all of these different things that you reviewed in our past podcast. Uh, we talked about, can you remind me of the, the fancy title? Yeah, it was, I did a systematic review of developmental social pragmatic interventions. There you go. So do, does this resource focus on those types of social pragmatic models that are out there at all? And if so, how? It's inclusive of the developmental social pragmatic interventions. So this umbrella review um, that Lauren has has done um, looked at, again, like across the different types of interventions. So it was inclusive of the naturalistic developmental behavior interventions, the NDBIs, the developmental interventions, and even included some behavioral interventions. Um, again, like her review was focused on SLP delivered as opposed to um, delivered by maybe behavioral therapists or BCBA therapists. Um, but it, it will provide the research evidence to for clinicians to be able to reference. And again, some of our other projects are looking at like what types of goals are targeted within these different types of interventions. So when we look at like the World Health Organization's framework for um, addressing kind of comprehensive goals that should be targeted within therapies, um, one area that um, my colleague BJ Cunningham has noticed in the field of speech language pathology is not always attended to or not historically, I should say, attended to is like the, the participation outcomes, right? So those participation outcomes map onto like um, maybe goals around like supporting the child to have like vocabulary aligned with soccer programs so that they can then participate with their peers in like their summer soccer league. Um, so again, like targeting those goals that really align with the client's values. And so what we're doing is we're looking at some of the different interventions and how some of the goals of the interventions align with this framework. So is the, is, are the goals more focused on maybe skill-based um, outcomes? Are the goals more focused on those participation, being able to communicate with parents for, for their needs? Um, are the goals more focused on maybe something like articulation? So like adjusting the, the body structures and functions. Um, so that again is another study that we're doing right now that again, I think will inform it'll give families and clinicians more information about like what are the similarities and differences across these different interventions. Um, so we'll have the research evidence. We'll look at the, the different types of goals. Each of those types of interventions are addressing. Um, we'll look at the coaching approaches used within each of the different interventions. And I have a few more other ideas up my sleeves for looking again finding the similarities and differences across the interventions, just so that we can like give the families more information so that they um, 
they have transparency in like what they're selecting, right? Because I think sometimes right now what happens is like, okay, there's there's three programs available within the community, but and there's there's descriptions of each of the different interventions, but it's not necessarily comparatively um, outlined other than like maybe one intervention is offered for eight weeks, say once a week. Another intervention might be offered two times a week for every other week. Um, and so again, those like structural things are important for making decisions, but so are how goals are targeted and how parents might learn the information or practice what it is that they're learning within the context of these parent-mediated interventions. So I'm hoping as we build that kind of literature base that families and clinicians will be able to make more informed decisions to align with client needs and family needs. Long-winded answer. It, it Excellent. And I have, uh, I think, one last question. So a lot sure. of uh, people in the autistic community are non-speaking. Either <laughs> they they might not have the capacity to speak, or they might also have some capacity to speak, but prefer to use text and other modes of communication. They yeah. might be situationally mute. Uh, there's different different um, types of ways to communicate. How does this resource address that? So in the individualized assessment and goal planning, we touch on it, but it is such a big topic that um, actually that is one of the pocket guides that we felt needed to be kind of built out in and of itself because it it was there was so much information and so many nuances, again, to think about when we're supporting clients to use alternative communication um, and the the assessment process for that. Um, again, we found like in the community, what tends to happen is maybe some diagnostic decision-making, right? Where a client gets a diagnosis and then PECS tends to be what is being used. We know from the research that PECS isn't necessarily, doesn't have the most robust um, body of, of evidence behind it. Um, and when you talk to autistic community members and even clinicians, right, like it, it, it is very limiting in like how you can communicate with PECs if it's used in a traditional way. Um, so yeah, one of our aims is to, is to provide some information around that. So thinking about like, how do we select which, um, alternative communication tools or devices might be the most appropriate. Um, and we have a, a clinician who was like really well-versed in that out of uh, the school board who's been helping to develop that. And I'm hoping that we'll be able to, to get that launched maybe by the end of the summer um, because it it is almost complete, but it's not quite there yet. So that's one of those like, stay tuned for more. Um, all right, uh, I'll put a link in the blog post with today's podcast to the podcast I did with Jolene Fernald, who talked about a number of alternative and augmentative communication devices as well, and that whole um, topic of purposeful communication. And um, the other thing about that more of an like an ethics kind of thing is, you know, a lot of parents really put pressure 
on their child and or the therapist to speak um, and maybe the child isn't able to and then they sort of wait and hope that the child will begin speaking instead of providing the child with an alternative means of communication which can help and they might still uh, develop verbal speech and use both together but um, I know that I've heard from the autistic community get those alternative and augmentative communication devices get the children learning that as early as possible because just like you don't learn to speak overnight you don't learn how to use these devices overnight uh, the earlier you start the more comfortable the child is and of course you mentioned there's one pex but then there's also all of these other different um, ones like prolo quo to go and, and I'm just naming the first one I thought of but so many different options and now there's different apps that some of them are even free that you can use that are more accessible to people who can't afford the fancy devices so um, yeah it, it'll be interesting to see all of that information in here because it must be very overwhelming to a provider who isn't up to speed on all the latest technology and all the latest apps that have come out and, and, you know, matching that to the client. Yeah. It's hard to stay up to date on, on all the apps, right? Technology is like changing and growing so fast. Um, but I think one of the things that um, the speech language pathologist, Valerie Wells has like emphasized as we've been having our discussions and building out this pocket guide too, is thinking about other low tech options, right? Like it, we don't always have to move to the tech right away. Um, and I think that sometimes that might be why PEX is often used because it's like the most prevalent, like low tech device. Um, but there are lots of different options for, for low tech um, options for supporting like activity boards and things to be able to support conversations during maybe particularly um, engaging activities. Um, there's, oh, I'm thinking there's one that is like almost like story based and there's like these like large books that I remember <laughs> talking about. I can't recall the name off the top of my mind, but like within this pocket guide, um, we have like outlined some different like low tech options, some different high tech options. Um, and again, like hope to keep that updated, like as, as people who are like really focusing on that in the field, um, update us too, right? Like let us know as you start to read through some of these resources, like, oh, hey guys, um, I love this. And I think you missed this part, right? Like, again, this is, we want this to be a collective, um, a collective process for being able to get the best evidence out there and the best information out there for uh, clinicians in the community. So please do um, share your thoughts and ideas with us um, after you tune in and, and read some of the resources. Uh, we would love that. Well, thank you so much, Amanda. I always love doing the podcast with you and getting that whole evidence-based, research-backed, you know, government funded kind of perspective and this will be such a useful tool and hopefully this podcast will help get the word out about it so thank you so much until next time here's to choosing play and experiencing joy every day icdl has a number of courses and services coming up that might interest you on friday august 11th and 18th is the course goal development informed by dir 
Coming in September are courses from psychologists Dr. Robert Nassif on support for fathers and Dr. Karen Levine on playing through fears and phobias in children. Then in November for six weeks every Friday at lunch is Choosing Play, Setting Up for Success Across the Lifespan. You can find out more information about all of these courses and ICDL's DIR Floor Time Certificate courses at icdl.com courses. Also, check out the upcoming afternoon and evening dates for parent support meetings that I facilitate at the events tab at affectautism.com. 